Matthew 24 and verse 3 is just going to kind of be our uh, anchor uh, tonight as we move through. We've got quite a bit, quite a bit of stuff to, um, to cover, some very general things, uh, but I think it will help you as we move into a little bit more of, um, of the meaning of some of the passages in Revelation that we'll get to. And, and here's the thing, don't, don't um, well, I, 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 I'll mention that here in just a minute. Uh, remember over in Matthew uh, chapter 24, uh, you have the disciples who come to Jesus. Um, and the Bible says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, they, they never really, a lot of times the disciples, it was almost like they didn't want to ask Jesus a question out loud in front of people because, um, for whatever reason, uh, but they waited till he was by himself and they they came to him and they asked him a question. And the question was, tell us when these things are going to happen. Now, remember, he's talked to them about the building, the temple. Um, you see all these things. Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. That happened in A.D. 70. Uh, and yet prophecy, one of the things you have to learn about prophecy is a lot of times it has a an immediate fulfillment, and it also has a future fulfillment as well. Uh, you'll, you'll have an example or an application of what he's talking about, and then you'll have a future fulfillment somewhere down the road. So they, they ask Jesus this question. Well, they basically ask him two questions. Um, when will these things be? When is that going to happen? Uh, and Jesus didn't give him a date, uh, but he did say this. Uh, but they ask him, okay, so when are these going to happen, and what's going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So what they have done is they've interpreted what Jesus has said as something that's coming in the future, which was what we would call prophecy. Now, here is... Here, here's just a, a thing to remember. Here's just a little, a little teaching point here. Um, how do you know if somebody is a true prophet or a false prophet? Well, a true prophet, what he prophesies has to come to pass 100% of the time. If he's 99.9% .9 right and misses one-tenth of a percent, he's a false prophet. So it kind of takes a lifetime and an eternity to figure out uh, to figure out if these guys today who call themselves modern day prophets are really day modern day prophets are uh, modern day kooks, uh, and a lot of them have already proven themselves to be the kook part of it. So anyway, so Jesus has um, has his disciples. They have asked him the questions: When, when, and what are the signs? And so Jesus pretty much goes through, and you go through, uh, especially the end of, through chapter 24 of the book of Matthew, and he kind of lays some of those things out, a lot of them very general, but at the same time, um, they, they are, he is kind of answering the question. Now, let me give you just a couple of verses, um, Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 and 33, okay, here's what it says, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. All right, Old Testament typology, Old Testament analogy, 
Israel is um, pretty well characterized as this tree in the Old Testament, okay? So learn the lesson from the fig tree. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you something that's probably going to rock your world because that's what we've been taught all along. This is all about Israel and the regathering. fact of the matter is, is I'm not sure that it is. Uh, but he does say when his branch becomes tender and grows leaves, you know that summer is near. I think in this analogy that Jesus is using, in one sense, and it may be in the sense of mentioning when you see the rebirth of Israel, but I think in one sense, Jesus was saying, and I, I, think about, I think about this for a moment, I think about even the signs of our seasons when we, we are so excited to see cool weather get here, okay? There's been an anticipation all summer that uh, cooler weather is finally going to get here. I think when I got in my car yesterday and left, it was 103 in my car. Extremely hot day, so we're just going, oh, can't wait till it gets cooler. So Jesus says to his disciples, learn, learn this lesson from the tri fig tree. When its branches become tender and grows leaves, you know that that summer, you know with anticipation that, that a season is coming. So Jesus is talking here about just observing the signs, knowing the signs. So also when you shall see these things, you know that it is near even at the door. So there, there, there has to be in the life of, of a believer, especially as it comes to this matter of prophecy, an anticipation for what's to come. Not, not, not a fear. Not a fear that's what's coming, but an anticipation for uh, the, the coming of Jesus or the end of the age or, or whatever they want to call it. Now, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 44, and if you want to, and I may, that may be on that card there, I'm not sure, but anyway, listen to this. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As were the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what were the days of Noah like? Well, he explains it. For as in the days before the, the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. It was a day just like any other day. It will be a day just like any other day. You'll get up. You'll get ready to go to work. You will uh, go through your routine that you always have. There's nothing special about it until it happens. And the fact of the matter is, is just in the days of Noah, when it started to rain, it was too late because the Bible says God shut the door. If they would have stood outside and screamed and hollered the whole time, let us in, Noah could not have opened that door. So, so as in the days of Noah, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at a meal. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour that your Lord will come. Okay? Uh, but know this. Here it is. If the owner of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have left his house to be broken into. So, so there is this, there's this thing that Jesus said. Listen, I'm not going to tell you what time it is. I'm going I'm to give you some signs. But I'm not going to tell you the day, but here's the deal. Just be watching. Every believer, I think it's the book of Titus that says, looking 
for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every believer ought to have this longing, this, this, this looking for the return of Jesus. And so um, we, we begin tonight with just some of these things that Jesus has said and I think have become uh, pretty common things that, that are signs. So, okay, um, we'll, we'll look at those. Um, on a, in April 2009, the cover of Newsweek magazine has a picture of Jesus with his arms stretched out. And the quotation is, the Jesus question, will Jesus re- ever return? That, that's, the, that, that's the heading in, in that magazine. Here's what the article stated. That one in five Americans believe that Christ will return in this present generation. That was 2009. One in five, 20%. Uh, people believe that Jesus will return in, in this generation. Um, while the news headlines do lead us to believe that the Bible's prophetic clock is winding down, here's what we must avoid. As a believer, here's what we must avoid. And, and I've seen it. I have, I have observed it. I have been in the middle of a lot of it myself over the years. There are two things you got to avoid when it comes to biblical prophecy. First of all, you have to avoid sensationalism. Okay, sensationalism. In our attempt to make sense of current issues, we can become so preoccupied with the end of the age that we see or overstate things that just aren't there. Okay? Don't read into everything you see. Don't see a demon behind every tree. Don't see a sign in everything that happens, okay? Be very careful that you know the Scripture and you can take what is happening and, and make application or at least get some authentication from what the Scripture says. But too many times we just see something, we just jump on something. Boy, that, that's a sign of the end of times. That's, that's what we might call sensationalism. Another thing that we would call sensationalism is date setting. Date setting, if a man comes out and says, this is the day that Jesus is going to return, you can better believe that it's probably not going to be on that day. Dr. Vines, I've heard him say multiple times, if I were the Lord and somebody got the date right, I would change the date just to mess them up. Don't set dates. Don't, you know, don't, don't look at calendars. There was a, I mean, over and over and over again. There was a book that came out in 1988, that, and I believe it was, 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Return in 1988. It didn't happen, obviously. And so he uh, kind of wiggled his way out of that one and made an excuse of why it didn't happen, that he miscalculated, wrote another one, it didn't happen then, and then literally he became known as one of the kooks, you know. Uh, there was a guy who came several years ago out in California, that gave a date. He had these people that followed him. They, it, it was so funny because uh, they just quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They moved into this, uh, this area. They waited for the Lord to return. They literally sewed ascension robes, which meant that they were sewn at the bottom so they could go up in modesty. Um, and it didn't happen. Don't, don't, don't set dates. Um, don't... Spend your time trying to identify who the Antichrist is. Um, you know, when we were growing up, one of the waves was it was um, 
John F. Kennedy because he had a head wound and everybody thinks he might be off somewhere waiting to come back. It's not John Kennedy. It's not Barack Obama, I'm telling you. Okay? Um, I, I, I have a friend and I, I tried to avoid him because he, he is totally convinced that Barack Obama's the Antichrist and he's pulling all these scriptures out and it's so twisted that you can't even keep up with it. Um, sensationalism is trying to, trying to identify who Antichrist is. We, we make every international incident or earthquake or natural disaster or war a sign of the times. A lot of times it is, but a lot of times it is not. Problem is, as one writer says, that every, when everything becomes a sign, nothing is a sign. Okay? Now, one of the things that I think that I can be pretty confident in saying is that the signs that Jesus is talking about have a, an element of, of supernaturalism attached to them. It's going to be things that really aren't normal to a certain extent. So, so just, just keep some of those things in mind. One reader calls this kind of sensationalism newspaper exegesis. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, he said it is both unproductive and unbiblical. It shows how careful we must be when searching for answers. We have to make sure that we are looking at current events in light of the Bible and not vice versa. So sensationalism is the first one. Um, the other extreme is scoffing. Scoffing, just blowing everything off. Uh, many people just blow off any talk about end times uh, and, and, and couldn't care less. Uh, their mantra is, if it happens, it happens, so I don't need to worry about it. God's going to do what God's going to do. That's kind of blowing it off, you know. Because, because the Bible's given us a roadmap. The Bible's given us some things. If it's not important to us, just know and understand it is certainly important to God. Because if I'm not mistaken to the exact number, 26.6% of Scripture is prophetic. So God's pretty, God's pretty concerned about it, okay? So don't just blow it off. It, 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 it's something that... Uh, that we need to be concerned about. It's something we need to know about. It's something we need to pursue. But we don't need to just go overboard with it. Um, so what are signs? Uh, signs help us to know what to look for or what to pay attention to. Jesus fulfilled. Did you know Jesus fulfilled 109 prophecies during his life on earth? 109 as... as um, It, 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 he, was, he was indicted by the Jewish leaders for, for missing the signs. Jesus indicted them for missing the signs. Old Testament signs of the first coming of Jesus, he fulfilled 109. So just remember, uh, the signs we're seeing today are events that will take place after, after the rapture, after we're gone. We've talked about that. Now, there are no rapture signs just hang with me for a minute You're looking, oh, there are no rapture signs there's not a sign out there anywhere that says okay we're getting close to the Lord returning for his church there's just not 
So if you're looking for a sign to say, uh, when is the Lord coming back for his church, you're not, there's not going to be one. The signs that Jesus specifically pointed to, the signs that we're specifically going to talk about tonight, just the real general ones, have to do with the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period. Okay? That is the second coming. The second coming is not the rapture. The second coming is Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Um. As I've said before, the rapture is Christ coming for his saints. The second coming is Christ coming with his saints. Now, uh, Abby asked me a great question. We said in their living room the other night, I want to kind of answer this because I, I, I felt like I kind of blew it off and went on something else. So what's the purpose of the millennium? The, the purpose of the millennium is to fulfill the promises that God made to Israel. Okay? when When they are... Um, um, when they become uh, believers, when they become full of the Spirit, when they are totally and absolutely restored to their nation, to their land, all that's going to happen during the millennium. It's the tribulation is going to get their get their attention. Okay, it's what's going to go. Whoa, we we messed up somewhere along the line. We missed something along the way. And, and there's going to be a national revival led by 144,000 Jews, evangelist Jews that are going to evangelize during that day, and, and, and there will be a return, there will be a recognition that Jesus is the promised Messiah that Jews today are still looking for, and the millennium is going to work itself out. I, I mean, the promises of God to Israel are going to work themselves out during that millennial kingdom. So just remember that the signs that we're seeing, we're going to talk about take place Later, there's no rapture signs. Signs are for the Lord's return, not for the rapture of the church. Okay, and we said we we good with that one. Now, if you look if you look down there on your outline, I said five signs of the end times. Okay, and and these are just kind of general. These are these are things that are spoken of, but number one is the regathering of the Jewish people. The regathering of the Jewish people. Now, you have uh, one reference there to uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Write all the words that I have spoken to you in a book. For surely the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. These are the words of the Lord that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. So, so you have, you have just, just that one verse in the book of Jeremiah where God says, write this in a book, put this down. I am going to restore my people Israel and Judah. Now remember, you said, well, why is he doing both? Well, the reason he's doing both is because after the death of Solomon, the nation split. Ten tribes went north, known as Israel. Uh, Judah, two tribes, stayed toward the southern end, their capital being Jerusalem. And they became known as Israel and Judah. But in, so, so in this instance right here, God is just saying, look, I'm going to bring all Israel back to their land. I'm going to give them their fortunes back. 
In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 24, you can just write that one down if you want to. We won't read all of these because we don't have time. Uh, but it is a, it's another passage, another prophetic passage about God bringing Israel back. Zechariah chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 10 is another one. And like I said, we're not going to read all those. Um, but let's look at this for a minute. The regathering of the Jewish people. The Bible predicts over and over that the Jewish people must be in the land before the end times events. They must be in the land. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 37 is, a, uh, is, is the prophecy about the dry bones. Y'all remember that one? And it's a really good evangelistic uh, preaching if you want to take it. But in context, it is God bringing Israel back to life. But it is a process. You see, I mean, you know, all of a sudden he speaks, there are dry bones out here, he speaks to them, they come together, then all of a sudden the, the ligaments, and, but, but at the end there's, no, there's still no breath in them. So although we see Israel, although we see the Jewish people moving back into Israel right now, they're in the early stages. God hasn't breathed into the living body yet, he's going to do that during the tribulation, during, during the millennial reign, Okay. So if, you want to, if, you, if you'll read it in that context, it'll make a lot of sense. The, the, the regathering of the Jewish people is the most prophesied event in end times passages. It is often called the super sign. In, in Bible prophecy, the regathering of Israel is a super sign. One reason is that Israel is the battleground of all end times conflicts. Okay? Now, I've said this before, and just hang with me, because I think everybody needs to understand this. If you're looking for end times signs, get off of local news and national news and go find out what's going on in the international news. Find out what's going on in Israel and in the Middle East. That's where it's going to happen. We get so caught up a lot of times trying to find signs for the Western world. Listen, I don't even know if America is going to even have a, um, a, a part in all of this. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is you cannot determine what God's signs are for His coming by looking at what's going on under your nose you got to move over into the Middle East and find out what's going on. Because everything that's going to happen is going to happen there. Okay? And, and I'm going to tell you, you'd be amazed at some of the stuff that's going on there right now. Uh, if if um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, loses his election, and it's, it's very likely that he could. They just had their election in Israel. If he loses that, we know that we have a strong bond with them. Uh, he is very supportive of America. We're very supportive of him. But I think, David, how many, how many were you telling me um, the Arabs are backing this other guy? Huh? Twelve delegates. Arabs. Uh, so, you know, all of these, you say, well, how in the world can that happen? Well, th it's happening. And, and so just watch it. Israel is God's blueprint for what he's doing in the world. Okay? For end times prophecies to be fulfilled, the Jewish people must be back in the land. 
The end times prophecy begins with the Antichrist when he makes a seven-year treaty with Israel. Now, we're going to look at something we won't have time to do ever, probably do all this now. But I want you to look at Daniel because I want to show you something in the book of Daniel that becomes very interesting. It's found in Daniel chapter 9. I have studied Daniel over and over and over and over, and I'm still amazed at um, the things that come out of it. I'll find it, too, here in a minute. Chapter 9, the book of Daniel. Look at verse uh, 27. Verse 27, the book of Daniel. And he, and he's basically talking about the Antichrist here. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. That's a seven-year seven period of tribulation we're talking about. But look at this. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the, the, in the middle of the seven years, he will cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. On the wing of abominations, uh, and, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed destruction is poured out um, on the desolator, which really, he, he, here's the whole thing. In the end times, the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. Okay, we don't look at all that because we're not in Daniel right now. Ezekiel chapter 38, David went over that one. Zechariah chapter 12 described armed invasions of the nation of Israel. For that to happen, Jewish people must be back in their land. Okay? A uh, good passage to describe how it's going to happen gradually, obviously, is Ezekiel 37. The regathering has been going on for about 130 years now. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. Tony won't know how many pages I flipped last week and how many I skipped. But let me just, let me just re-give you this one right here. Um, in 1881 to 1900, 30,000 Jews returned. 1904 to 1914, 32,000. I'm not going to go through all these numbers. The fact of the matter is, is today there are 6.5 million Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? So for the last 130 years, they've been moving back in that direction. In 2009, in 2009, for the first time since A.D. 135, there are more Jews in Israel than in other, uh, any other place in the world. They were scattered during, during the world wars. They went here. They went everywhere. They went in, into Africa. They went over into Europe, uh, into all kinds of areas. There are more Jews in Jerusalem right now than there ever has been since the year 135. They're, they're moving back. To put that in perspective, in 1948, 6% of Jews in the world lived in Israel. Today, 40% of all the Jews in all the world live in Israel. Listen to this one. By the year 2030, it is estimated that the number will be over 50%. So they're, 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 total, they're, they're, they're regathering, they're regathering. So, so, you know, one of the very first uh, signs that's talked about in Scripture is the sign of the regathering of the Jewish people. The second one is the one that I've really become interested in here lately. The second one is a surging apostasy. A surging apostasy. Apostasy is a word that means to depart from the truth. 
to depart from the truth. And really it carries with the idea of, uh, of twofold, doctrinally and morally. Okay, so apostasy is doctrinally moving away from the truth, but it's also morally moving away from the truth. Now, I'm going to tell you all something. I, I thought this was so cool because when we talk about morally, when we start looking at lifestyles, we're so afraid that people are going to call us legalistic, right? I mean, we won't be called legalistic. I was reading a guy last week, and I, he, he made a very interesting statement because he said, look, if, if we are not to judge... Uh, because we'll be judged with the same judgment that we're judged with, that we judge with. But yet you go over here and Jesus is judging um, the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites. And, and the question then became, well, you know, is that contradictory? Well, the fact of the matter is, here's what he said. We as believers, it's natural to judge people's actions. We're just not to judge their motives for their actions. So, you know, you, you can look out there and you can go, man, that's just flat wrong. And we're not being legalistic when we say that because it's wrong. As it deals with the doctrinal teachings of the Bible, if it's wrong, it's wrong. It just is. And people may call that narrow, and I'm sure it you know, probably is to some. But the fact of the matter is, is that I don't, you know, we don't judge somebody's motives because they are morally in the sewer but we can certainly look at it and know that they are, okay? So, so, so apostasy is this falling away doctrinally and morally. Uh, passage of Scripture for that would be 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I've given you that one. Now, the Spirit clearly says, In the last time some will depart from the faith, paying attention to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and, and commanding to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by, the, by those who believe and know the truth. Also, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. We won't do all that one, but he just says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. It, there, there is going to be this surging, moving away from. We're going through Jude on... Sunday mornings, you read through Jude, that talks about this apostasy. Now, the church is facing, I believe, two great battles. Two great battles. And, and this is probably not going to be very popular for me to say. But I think the rise of Islam is one of them. Um, Islam wants to... Raise up a religion that wants to dominate the world. Okay? That's from the outside. So, so, so you have, and I, I think it is a problem, we need to pay attention to it, that, that the rise of Islam, uh, because it's a religion that wants to dominate the world, we need to be very careful. We already have two that sit on our own seats in Congress who are Muslims and anti-Semites. They openly um, speak against Israel. The, lo the Lord only knows in Congress 
How many behind-the-scenes sympathizers they have? It is estimated that in the neighborhood of over 100 people who worship Allah will be running for public office nationwide in the next election cycle. It, uh, listen, I'm going to tell you all. We can say, well, there's, there's moderate and there's this and that. You know, we can't be. The fact of the matter is, if they are true Muslim and they are true worshipers of Allah, their main thrust, whether they say it or whether they don't, is kill all the infidels and to create an Islamic caliphate, which basically is a, a, a worldwide religion. Okay? That's just one of many during this, during this age of apostasy uh, of things that bombard the church from the outside. The thing that bombards the church, the rise of Islam, on the outside, the rise of theological liberals from the inside. Um, there are all sorts of false teachers uh, that diminish and even not even deny essential doctrines of of Christianity and morality. I mentioned a few of those to you even on Sunday morning. Christian apostasy in its broadest terms is defection or departure from the truth of Scripture. Okay? In its, in its purest, broadest terms, it is departing from the doctrines of the truth that are presented to us in Scripture. Apostasy, and, here, and here's the key, apostasy has absolutely nothing to do with the unsaved world. They don't have anything to apostatize from. Apostasy pertains to the spiritual temperature within God's church. Okay? Apostates are generally characterized by two things in the New Testament. Number one, false doctrine. And number two, ungodly living. Several things that lead people to depart from the truth of God's word. Let me just give you those. You, there's a list here. Number one, the love of the world. Love of the world is one of them. People put themselves above the Bible rather than under the Bible. We believe we know more about how to live our own lives than God knows. Don't love the world. Don't love anything in the world. Because if anybody who loves the world doesn't have the love of the Father in him, that's what John says. He's not saying, you know, he, he, he's basically saying, listen, if we love, we, we love the world, we love the things of the world more than we love God, then the love of God's not in us. There, there, there's always, in the life of a believer, whether he's wayward or whether he's, whether he's just straying or, 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 or misguided, there's still always a little spark of the love of God in him. You notice in that Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 passage, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what he's talking about here. So the love of the world. Number two, a superficial, superficial attention to God's word. Love of the world, superficial attention to God's word. They don't know the Bible and they don't take it seriously. 
Number three, all-out rebellion. I know what it says. I'm just not going to live by it. Just not going to do that. We know what it says. We're just not going to do it. That's rebellion. That's defiance. Here's another reason, because there are some people who say, well, the words of Jesus are just too narrow. And people depart from the faith because they want to believe that there are different ways to heaven, that God's this loving God who loves everybody and He's not going to punish anybody. And so they depart from the faith, especially, or leave the church when somebody starts preaching hard about the words of Jesus. And then number five, many of them are are people pleasers. People pleasers. Compromise always lowers the standard. Great comment. Compromise always lowers the standard. Teachers, pastors, and church leaders are under constant pressure. I'm telling y'all, I've been there, been doing this for a long time. Sunday school teachers, leaders in the church, y'all know it. We are under constant pressure to weaken our theology and our morality to make people feel good. I had rather see people walking out of here with their head tucked between their legs, feeling terrible, than for people to walk out of here patting themselves on the back Because they're such good people. Does that make any sense at all? We're not to be men pleasers. I read an illustration this week. I thought it was pretty good. Kind of characterizes maybe even some of our churches today. There's a New York City family that bought a cattle ranch out west. And they intended to raise cattle. So some of their friends from New York came out to Texas to meet them, and they asked them, they said, well, what's the name of your ranch? The man said, well, that's kind of interesting because uh, when we moved out here, he said, I wanted to name the ranch the Bar J. But my, my, my wife wanted to name it the Susie Q. I have one son that wanted to name it the Flying W. But my other son wanted to name it the Lazy Y. So we're just calling it, and I had to write this down, Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Wire Ranch. And somebody said, where's all your cows? He said, they didn't survive the branding. Compromise is deadly, folks. Compromise is deadly. And one of the signs of the last days is going to be this, this, this surging apostasy, this falling away, this turning away from the truth. All right, let me give you, maybe we can get through these other ones real quick. Number three, coming Middle East peace. Coming Middle East peace. Now, David made a statement this week, because we were talking about it, and they were talking about peace in the Middle East. And he said, something's got to happen, because that, that ain't going to happen. Um, maybe the precursor to that is going to be Netanyahu 
uh, losing his election is some guy coming in who's willing to negotiate with the Arabs and make a peace treaty. That, that, all, all we ever talk about, we just hear about all the talking points are about the need for peace in the Middle East. In Syria and Iran, Iraq and Turkey and Israel, guns and weapons are pointed at each other. Ships in the seas are constantly monitoring situations. NATO, who can't do anything or stop anything, is in the middle of all of it. There will be a peace treaty in the beginning of the tribulation as found over in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Until then, no peace. The fact of the matter is those people have been fighting each other for 6,000 years. The main factor leading up to it is in view today. And that is the desire by all people involved for a peaceful Middle East. We talk about it. Okay, let me give you the next one. The reuniting of the Roman Empire. Which, by the way, we're not talking about what I think we think the Roman Empire is. I'm talking about in the day in which the Roman Empire conquered. The catalyst for this is scrambling for political power and dwindling natural resources. Now listen to this very carefully. Dwindling natural resources. Did your gas go up 20 cents this week? A gallon or more? David talked in Ezekiel chapter 39. God said, I'm going to put hooks in their jaws. I'm going to bring them over here. One of the hooks I think that God's going to use is a dwindling resource of oil. They're blowing up oil fields in Saudi Arabia today. That's why our gas prices are going up. There's going to be a scrambling for political power. Who wants to be in charge? Every nation of the world wants their nation to be in charge. Iran, if it ever, get, ever gets a nuclear weapon, um, will point it at Israel. As a matter of fact, everything over there is pointed at Israel right now. David was telling me tonight that some of the rockets that have been shot into Saudi Arabia didn't explode. And because we have Americans there, and I'm going to tell you, the Israelis are so smart. They're so smarter than us that they've already got all this stuff figured out. They were able to take these things apart, look at them, and know exactly where they came from. They came from Iran. But, but, but Iran's, Iran's main goal is to shut off all help to Israel so that Israel becomes weak, and they can just go in there and take it. One of the things that... That, that was so interesting in some of David's teaching is, is they believe now. All of this oil that's coming from Saudi Arabia that's come for so many years, the source of it is over in Israel. It's flowing, it's flowing from Israel over into Saudi Arabia. And so there's going to be this mad scramble as these nations come together. Daniel chapter 2, 41 through 44. Daniel 7. Uh, let me just, let me just um, see if I've got this one on here. Uh, look at Daniel 2. Um, As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be, there shall be in it some of the strength of the iron, inasmuch so as it is mixed with iron and with miry clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas, and these ten toes basically represent ten nations. There's going to be a ten-nation coalition in the end days that's going to come together 
And their, listen, their main priority is going to be world dominion and control of natural resources. Out of all of this situation, this coalition, um, coalition of nations will emerge to protect the interest of the West or of themselves. This reconstruction of the Roman Empire will consist of ten nations, as mentioned in the book of Daniel. The ten nations will have the economic and political power to control, to control the Mediterranean area. Its final leader, the Antichrist, will seize control of the ten leaders and consolidate power much like the Roman Empire did. That's, that's, that's coming. Okay, last, last one, globalism. How many, how many times have you heard people talking about a world court? World court. Did you know that, that one of the Muslim ladies in Congress has made a play to NATO to come and protect our southern border, to allow immigrants to come in without being obstructed by the United States military? These are the kind of things that are going on. Sharia law. You have some areas now that have, have their American law, but then they have a, they, they've embraced Sharia law as well. Ever since Genesis 10 and 11, when Satan ruled the world through Nimrod, his goal has been to rule the world again. History bears this record. It is a record of one man after another man trying to rule the world. For the first time since Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, globalism is within reach. Not only in the 21st century is there a desire for a world government, there is through technology the avenue of establishing one. TV, satellite, internet, social media, cable news covers almost every corner of the planet weapons no time in history has there been more capable weapons than now gps guided missiles electromagnetic pulses nuclear weapons all in the hands of the wrong people could threaten any nation in the world and be blackmailed into submission if and the capabilities are there one electromagnetic pulse i guess it's a bomb what do you call it was exploded over America, it would shut down every electrical system, water system, anything that's run by computer, anything that's kept up with computer, it would put us back in the dark ages overnight. The threat is real. First time in history, the possibilities of those kinds of things happening. Economics. Economics. Revelation chapter 13. Let me give you this one. So that no one may buy or sell except he who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. I don't know what it's going to be. Probably going to be something technological. There are several things that I've read over the last few years. Um, chips implanted. Eye scanners in grocery stores. Money is almost non-existent. 
Billions and billions of dollars are transferred through the internet every day. Every day. Wouldn't take but one person who knew how to control all that just to, to, to grind us all into submission. Think about it. Electronic funds, transfers, electronic banking, debit and credit cards. We pretty well have a cashless economy. fact of the matter is, and I'll close with this, the, the necessary ingredients for a world government exist today. Now, I don't know. I, I think there's still some good stuff going on I think there's still some good people in the world that are committed to keep that from happening but when those good people are gone guess what it's going to be survival of the fittest isn't it and I promise you I promise you in, 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 in offices and behind closed doors in almost every major nation of the world there are already plans, there are already um, um, plans, <laughs> there's blueprints as to how when the first chance they get, they're going to seize power. You know why it's not happening right now? Do you know? Holy Spirit's holding that back. Jesus ain't ready to come yet. That's the reason it's not happening. But when you begin to see these things happen, when you begin to sense that what the Bible says is very gradual, beginning of birth pains. He said, you know, it's like a woman who has a birth pain, but it's not yet. The restrainer is still alive and well and working because you know what? God is not slack as some men count slackness. He is patient. He is kind, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every day, every day this doesn't happen. God is giving our lost neighbors and friends and family an opportunity to be saved. So you know what? That scares the living daylights out of you. But if you're saved, you ain't going to be here. You're not going to be in the middle of that. I think the great fear for me, though, is, is that I know some people that may very well be. And i got to be about doing my father's business. Till he comes. Not today, as D.L. Moody said, maybe tomorrow. 